Chapter 3 of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes Gibbon. Chapter 3. The Weight and State of Air. If one would understand the atmosphere as a whole, one must learn something about the laws which govern its movements. That air is a substance, and therefore is heavy like any other substance, has already been explained. We are apt to talk of things as heavy and not heavy, as if some things had weight and some had not. But every substance, without exception, has weight. A certain gas, called hydrogen, does not commonly fall downward, but rises through the air upward. If we wish to send a balloon towards the sky, we only have to fill it with hydrogen gas, and it is sure to ascend. Yet hydrogen gas is a substance and has weight, only its weight is so very much less than the weight of common air that the air particles fall naturally below and press the lighter particles of hydrogen upward. This is how a balloon rises, not because it has no weight, but because it weighs less than air. A cork has weight, yet in water it springs to the top, because it weighs less than the same bulk of water. A feather, light as we count it, has weight, and if dropped in a closed vessel emptied of air, it will reach the bottom quite as fast as a lump of iron. From its light and spreading make, it is easily buoyed up and carried along by the slightest breeze. But if the air is still, it soon finds its way downward. Until nearly the middle of the 17th century, nobody so much as suspected the fact that air had weight. When Galileo was an old man of 76, he was the first to gain a glimpse of the long-hidden truth, and his pupil, Torricelli, followed out his experiments, proving him to be in the right. Weight is caused by a wonderful force or power, which holds sway, not only on Earth, but in the Sun and the planets, and throughout the universe, the force of gravitation. Every substance attracts every other substance towards itself with a greater or less degree of strength, dependent on the size, the make, and the distance of each. If no substance attracted any other substance, there would be no such thing as weight. When we speak of a mass of iron being heavy, we mean that the Earth draws it downward. When we speak of the whole atmosphere having weight, we mean that it, too, is pulled earthward. The attractive force which causes all objects to draw nearer together, when not prevented, we know by its effects, and by its effects only. We see what it does, not what it is. That such a force exists, we perceive. That such a law or order prevails, we know. But what the force is in itself, and in what mode one substance influences another, none can tell us. Search as we may, and rightly may, into these things, solving one perplexity after another, we find ourselves surrounded still by baffling walls of mystery. We call attraction one of nature's laws, or one of nature's forces. Either term leaves us where we stood before. The forces of nature are the forces of the God of nature. The laws of nature are the laws of the God of nature. They constitute the plan on which the universe and all that is therein are framed. And because they are his laws, his forces, and because he is our father, we, his children, may well search into them with the utmost of such powers as he has given us. The air of our almost invisible ocean is often described as an elastic fluid, but this gives no clear idea of its condition. A fluid may be either a liquid or a gas, and liquids are by no means the same as gases. There are three distinct forms known to us of the same substance upon earth. These three states or forms are called the solid, the liquid, the gaseous. A simple illustration is to be found in the water. Suppose a man should travel to earth from some far-off region of space, having never seen our common earthly substances. 
having never come across water in any of its various conditions. He must not, by the by, hail from the planet Mars, since there, at least, we have good reason to believe snow not only exists, but thaws, which means the presence of water as well as of ice. Suppose on arrival he should alight first upon a Greenland glacier, having hard ice all around him. He would naturally describe water as a species of rock, for thus far he would know it only in the solid or frozen form. If he landed first on the border of the ocean, in a temperate climate, he would describe water as a liquid. If his first acquaintance with it were in the shape of steam escaping from a boiler, he would describe it as a vapor or as a gas. He would not at once, without further observation, know that these three are one and the same substance under different forms. He would not yet know that ice can be turned into water, water into steam, steam into water, and water into ice. Nor could he guess that the force by which its presence or absence works these changes is heat. You have a solid block of ice, and a certain amount of heat is brought to bear upon it. Gradually the ice becomes water. The solid is changed into a liquid, but the substance is the same. The particles which form the water are the same which form the ice, only under altered conditions. Again, more heat is brought to bear upon the water until it boils. Then gradually it changes into steam. The liquid has become vapor, but still the substance is the same. The particles which form the steam are the identical particles which form the water, and before that the ice, only a change has come over them. If the steam is not allowed to escape, but is kept in a confined space and cooled down, the particles will draw together again, and the steam will once more become water. If the cooling is continued, more heat being taken away until the freezing point is reached, it will turn again into ice. To the same ice which it was originally, the particles of matter are the same. The substance is not altered. It has merely passed through a series of changes of form. All solid substances are formed of minute particles, more or less closely bound together by a certain mutual attractive power which we call the force of cohesion. Cohesion means sticking together. When we speak of the force of cohesion, we simply speak of the force of sticking together. But to speak of the parts of a substance sticking together is by no means to say why they stick together. And to talk of the cause as a force is not at all to tell how it acts. The how of this matter is again beyond us, for the attraction of cohesion is even more mysterious than the attraction of gravitation. We see both by their effects but we do not know in what manner these effects are brought about. In a general way, when we speak of a law, we mean a command which has to be obeyed. By a law in nature we mean rather a rule of action constantly followed by certain bodies under certain conditions. The word signifies not that the divine ruler has given definite commands which the world of matter obeys, but that the divine creator has impressed or endued each particle of matter with certain characteristics which under the same circumstances always result in the same modes of action or work. We speak often of substances obeying certain laws, but since the word obey implies choice and the possibility of disobedience, it is hardly a correct term. Each particle of substance merely does in each set of circumstances, and does inevitably, that which is its nature to do. But how and why one minute particle of matter should differ so utterly in its nature from another is a profound mystery. Authors note. Since writing these chapters, I have come across the following sentence in a letter of Charles Kingsley's. Everywhere, skin deep below our boasted science, we are brought up short by mystery impalpable, 
and by the adamantium gates of transcendental forces and incomprehensible laws, of which the Lord, who is both God and man alone, holds the key, and alone can break the seal. Life of Kingsley, 2, 7. In addition to the force of cohesion, which holds together the particles of any substance, there is another and opposite force, sometimes described as the force of repulsion, or the force of driving away. It seems singular that two such opposite forces should be at work in one lump of iron, or one piece of wood, that the very particles which are trying to get closer to other particles should also be trying to get farther away from them. Many things in nature are, however, brought about by such working of opposite powers. We are well able to see a need in the present case for both, if our world is to remain in its present form. Without the force of cohesion, there would be no solid substances at all. The whole earth, and all it contains, would be a scattered mass of loose, impalpable dust, too fine for the human eye to see. There would be no shapes or forms of separate bodies, were it not for the force which binds their particles together. If, on the other hand, there were no check upon cohesion, changes of an exactly opposite kind would come about. The particles of each lesser substance and of the earth itself would shrink closer and closer together till the entire mass would have grown inconceivably small and hard. This shrinking and hardening would include the ocean of air. It is what we call repulsion among the air particles which keeps them apart. If the particles of any gas are forced close together by cold or pressure it becomes a liquid. If they are forced still closer it changes into a solid. Probably all earthly substances are capable of taking these three forms under certain conditions, though man has not always means at his command to work the changes. There are solids which have not yet been made liquid, and there are gases which remain persistently gases. For a long while atmospheric air resisted all efforts, but at length, under intense pressure and cold, it was liquefied and even rendered solid. So if no force of repulsion existed to counterbalance the force of cohesion, not only would the whole earth become amazingly small and hard, but the whole ocean of air would be transformed into a solid harder than iron. It is through the opposite workings of these two forces that we have the three forms of matter, solid, liquid, and gaseous. In a solid, the cohesion is said to be greater than repulsion. In a liquid, the cohesion and repulsion are said to be equal. In a gas, the repulsion is said to be greater than the cohesion. The particles of a gas struggle to get far apart from one another. Unless confined on all sides, they fly away and are lost. This would happen with our entire atmosphere if it were not for the controlling power of gravitation. The ocean of air is tied and bound to the earth by gravitation alone. In upper layers, where both the attraction of the earth and weight of the overlying air are lessened, the separate air particles float much more widely apart. Yet even there, even on the outmost limits of the atmosphere, they are still under the restraint of gravitation. At the level of sea, the atmosphere presses upon each square inch of the ground, and of every creature and thing upon earth, with a weight of about fifteen pounds. The whole atmosphere, all around the whole earth, is said to weigh about eleven millions of millions of pounds. So really, it is not astonishing that the lower layers of air should be packed tightly together. It seems extraordinary that we do not ourselves feel the pressure, since it is upon us as well as upon the earth. On each square inch of our bodies the atmosphere bears hard with a force of 15 pounds weight, which means over 2,000 pounds upon the square foot, and something like 30,000 pounds upon the whole body of an ordinary sized man. Try to lift a load of 100 pounds, then think 
what it would be to have twenty times that weight lying upon your chest. You could only expect to be crushed and killed. Some such result would doubtlessly come about, but for the fact that the pressure existed everywhere. Air is not only outside, but also inside us. It not only surrounds, but pervades our frames. We, it is true, are in the air, and no less truly, the air is in us. Pressure from without is counterbalanced by resistance from within. This fact of air pressure can be shown by an ordinary air pump. Before the air is pumped out of the bell-shaped glass, it may be lifted by a finger, but when the air is gone from within, the outside air bears upon it so heavily as to make the glass immovable under one's utmost efforts. It is literally jammed down upon the wooden stand. If the glass were not very strong and shaped for resistance, it would be shivered into pieces. Atmospheric pressure, acting equally in all directions, is due to its make as a gas. The particles of gas are in a state of ceaseless unrest, forever hurrying to and fro one among the other with immense speed, perpetually striking against each other and against the sides of any vessel in which the gas may be confined. Each particle of air is always on the rush, always striking and rebounding from its neighbors, and any solid or liquid substances which lie in its path. If a tumbler is filled to the brim with water, and a piece of blotting paper or other soft paper is laid over it, the glass may be carefully turned upside down, and the whole body of water will be borne up by the wet paper. That which keeps the paper in position is neither more nor less than the ceaseless cannonade of invisible air particles, millions of millions of minute pellets of air banging upwards each instant against the paper from outside and holding it up. It is this incessant battery of air particles which constitutes the pressure of air against the sides of a vessel, upward, downward, within, without, and always. It is this which, as above stated, when acting within a closed box or within the limits of the human frame, is sufficient completely to counterbalance the outside pressure. It is in this way, through the unceasing hail of innumerable air particles on the basin of a barometer, that the mercury is held up in the barometer tube. The same explanation serves also for the rising of water in a pump. Moreover, the degree of pressure varies at different times and in different places. A cubic foot of common air near the surface of the earth generally weighs a little more than an ounce and a quarter. In other words, it generally presses with a degree of force not downwards only, but in all directions. Generally, not always. The degree of pressure is proportional to the number of air particles within the cubic foot of air. The more dense a certain portion of air is, that is to say the more closely its particles are packed together, the heavier its pressure. Thus the weight of the atmosphere, generally caused by gravitation, increases the density of air near the surface of the earth, and thereby increases its pressure. The amount of pressure is also increased by heat. If a cubic foot of air is enclosed in a vessel of the same size and is then heated, the pressure against the top, bottom, and sides of the inside of the vessel becomes greater, because heat increases the energy of the air particles and so adds to the force of their battery. End chapter 3